We're in Acts chapter 20 this morning. If you want to turn there, I know they'll have it on the slides. You can follow there. Uh, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Hear the word of God. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That that word is bishop. Has made you bishops to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Well, a few weeks ago, Andrew called and sent me a note. I was in India. He asked me if I would preach on this text. And and I said, sure. Well, actually, all he said was Acts 20. I knew he was preaching through the book of Acts. And so... He didn't say which verses, which means we would have a really long sermon if we did all 38 verses. And but it's Sunday, and you have nowhere to go, and there's no football, so I guess we got plenty of time. And uh, then I figured this is a famous passage. I figured we'd be starting in verse 17, and, and so I assumed that was there. But you can see this passage is so rich. There's so much there. Uh, Paul is on his third missionary journey. It begins back in chapter 18. You can read all that for yourselves. But, but he uh, started out in Ephesus. He traveled inland from Antioch to Asia Minor to F, the great city of Ephesus where he spent three years doing ministry. So he knows these people really well. He's prayed with them. He's preached with them. He's ministered with them. And then from there, he went to Macedonia all the way around uh, the Asiatic Sea to Greece. 
And so he, he went there uh, visiting churches that he had planted in the past because this was his pattern. He would plant new churches and then he would go back to visit them and, and bring renewal because mostly they were messed up by the time he got back. And, and, and then, uh, then the Lord had called him to go to Jerusalem and take a gift because there was famine in Jerusalem. And so the, the brothers in Macedonia had raised a lot of money in spite of the fact that they were poor and they were giving that money to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So he was going back the way he came and then he set sail from Philippi and he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem by Passover. So he knew if he actually went into Ephesus, he'd get waylaid and he'd have to stay there and do some ministry for a while. So instead, he stops on the coast at Miletus and he calls for the elders to come out and see him. And he, he's saying goodbye to these, these, this blessed church and these leaders that he has spent so much time in prayer with. Uh, but it's also a time for final instructions. And so Paul calls for the elders, not the whole church, but the elders. And he first reminds them of his own example of godly and righteous leadership. And then he warns them. So I thought we would do the same with this text this morning. Um, in your bulletin, the wrong title of the sermon is on there because I never told Andrew what my title was. So he just stuck one in there. The title of my sermon is Three Ways to Kill a Church Planting Movement. So you've been studying church planting and what the Holy Spirit was doing in the book of Acts to plant and multiply churches. And we get here and Paul warns them, I think, and gives them three ways that you could kill a church planting movement. The first way is lazy leadership. Lazy leadership. You know, this is an impressive list that Paul gives them of his activity and his qualifications for ministry. There is humility. There's tears. There are many trials along the way. Then there is his practice of training and teaching in which he did public teaching and then he taught house to house. Uh, he is an example of hard work and generosity. At the end of this little section, he talks about how he didn't really depend on anybody else, but he worked hard so that he could be generous to the weak and help those who were in need. Paul is a serious stud when it comes to ministry and leadership, and he's worth imitating. He's worth asking God so that we can imitate him. Now, when Paul says the word humility, he, he's not referring to to a, a melancholic spirit or, or a, a soft temperament. That, that's not what humility is. Humility is an attitude of deference and grace toward the Lord and toward his people. A humble man or woman knows that Jesus is king and, and that their righteousness comes from heaven and, and not for themselves. So an extroverted, outgoing person whom we think of as a natural leader, well, that person can be humble. And an introverted person who's slow to speak could also be a humble leader. The, the style of leadership is not what at issue here. It, it's also true that both an extrovert and an introvert can be arrogant and proud. Here, here's an example of humility from Numbers 12. It says, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. Now, Moses wrote the book of Numbers, but I don't think he wrote that line. <laughs> I, I think maybe Joshua added that line later. I don't think Moses wrote it. But 
Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Now, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? You know, if you're really humble, you don't say the H, right? You just say humble. You know, that Andrew, he's really humble. So, so Moses was really humble. And uh, he's, he's probably the most powerful man on the planet at the time. Think about that. He had killed an Egyptian defending a, a fellow Israelite, a fellow Hebrew, which means he's a tough guy. And then he also stood up to Pharaoh, which is the, who is the preeminent king of his day. And, uh, and Moses is now leading tens of thousands of Israelites to the promised land. You know, I imagine it might have been like meeting the, uh, the governor or the president. It might have been a little scary to be in the presence of Moses and yet the Bible says that Moses was the most humble man alive. I, I can only conclude that his humility is a measure of his dependence on his relationship with God. That he knew God, that he spent time with God, that he was a man of prayer. The world promotes power, prestige, and position as the goals of life and the measure of success. And the kingdom of God offers humility instead. Combine that humility with tears, and Paul was clearly a man of prayer. You know, the Greco-Roman world in which he lived did not, did not prize humility in their leaders. And neither does our culture. You can see that in our president. What's so remarkable, though, about gospel-centered leadership is that it's based in humility. It's grounded in Christ, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So here's what Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 22. The, the disciples have been arguing about who's greatest. Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection as three days. And so the disciples, they're really clued into the conversation. And so they start arguing about who's the greatest. And so Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And, and, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So nothing's really changed, right? They're public servants. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. I'm fairly confident that at the marriage table of the Lamb, that Jesus will be serving the dinner. Christ-centered leaders are not seeking power, prestige, or position from the world. The only place we want power is from the Holy Spirit. So we are seeking humility so that we can imitate the master as servants of the flock. So you see, Paul has set an example for these elders for three years to be hard-working servant leaders. Now, in my opinion, the gospel ministry in America has fallen on hard times. Our pastors, at least in the PCA, often spend 20 hours each week preparing a message for Sunday. And then many of them, maybe most of them, don't do weekly visitation, don't lead small groups, or practice hospitality. We've, uh, we've perhaps perverted the, the confession's commitment, the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about ordinary grace, and, and maybe we've perverted what it means to be committed to ordinary grace to include Sunday sermons, but not to include house ministry. 
And, and yet, that was the apostolic practice. In, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were arrested for doing public ministry, and they have to go stand before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish local politicians, and, and these politicians tell them that they have to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, that they need to cease doing public ministry. And so Peter says, you know, you decide whether we should obey God or men. They refuse. And so when they're released, what do you think they do? Well, here's the answer in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. That was the apostolic standard. Public teaching and from house to house. Now, this is hard work, but it's the the fruitful work that brings forth converts and disciples. Humility in prayer doesn't mean less work. It results in greater fruitfulness, so it actually means more work. And, and our pastors and, 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 and our elders, your elders, are busy about so many things. And so this is not a call to busier leaders. We don't need that. But the clear example of Paul and the other apostles is public teaching and from house to house. This is what multiplies disciples and churches. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls himself the least of all the apostles. And then he says, yet God's grace in my life was not in vain because I worked harder than all the others. Now, that's been my goal from the beginning, to imitate Paul in that way. Um, There are smarter people. More, more talented people than me, more gifted. I, I wasn't even a very good pastor. Your pastor's Andrew is way better than this at this than I was. I, I wasn't even very good at it, and 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 so, you know, you can't control what your gifts are and how talented you are, but you can control how hard you work. And so, I've made it my goal to work harder than everybody else, and uh, that's been my goal for thirty years. And so. You know, maybe what they'll say at the end of my ministry when I retire is, that Whittle, he wasn't very talented, but by golly, he worked hard. And so if that's what they say, I'll be well pleased. When I was teaching on prayer in India, that's what I was doing with John Smed there as we were teaching the Lord's Prayer seven days with Jesus. I realized that that uh, having been out of the church, out of the pastoral ministry for six years, that I haven't been as fully involved in the life of the church as I would like. And what I realized that I miss most about being the pastor of a local church is those five groups of men that I met with every morning for prayer. Those 25 men that I was discipling in which maybe we read a book or two, but the focus of our time together was seeking Jesus together in prayer. Now, that's where discipleship was getting done in my church. We were being discipled by King Jesus as we sought the Lord together in prayer. You see, elders are not a corporate board overseeing the pastor, and pastors are not CEOs. I don't know why we've tried to borrow that model. We are not professionals. We are overseers. We are bishops in the Lord, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're shepherds who are teaching, training, and guarding the flock. We are watchmen committed to prayer and the word. 
training the flock publicly and from house to house. And that right there is a ton of work if it's done well. Without worrying about buildings and building extensions and setting up chairs and planning worship services and moving tables. I used to say we that we take a class in seminary on how to set up an assembly hall and set up tables because nobody else is going to do it. And when I was an intern at uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church a, a million years ago, Andrew was a small child. It was his dad's church. And I was going to RTS and I was an intern. And we had two men, o- uh, older men, who took care of the building. One of them was blind and the other one couldn't lift his arm above his head. And so... They, they had this consistent problem with changing out light bulbs because, you know, those, those neon, those, those uh, fluorescent lights, you have to be able to see to get the little things in there. So the man who could lift both his hands above his head couldn't see. And the other man couldn't get his hands up there. Now, this could be a great story if they worked together, but actually they would come to my office every Thursday afternoon and say, Jim, I have a list of light bulbs that need to be changed. That's great for interns, but the elder's work, the pastor's work is prayer and the word, teaching the the gospel in public and from house to house. And so for you to be, continue to be a multiplying church, multiplying disciples and churches, you need to set your leaders free. You change the light bulb, set them free to be men of prayer and the word and expect it of them, demand it of them that they teach you the gospel well. All right, the second um, barrier, the second way to kill a church planting movement is divisive wolves. Look there at verse 29 of our text. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, wolves are dangerous for sheep. And more dangerous still are wolves that come in sheep's clothing. They're especially dangerous because you don't know who they are. And and, uh, they come in, in two ways. Either they come teaching false doctrine. And did you notice as we read the text, they come from within. They're not out there. The wolves are in here already. And they teach false doctrine or they lead the church in false mission. So Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 15, he says, Watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly are ferocious or ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Now, what kind of fruit do they bear? Well, it's the fruit of unbelief, the fruit of self-salvation. Wolves come as, a, as kind and nice sheep they, to, to, they, who appear to be looking out for your welfare, but they deny the central place of the cross of Christ and substitute something else for it. Uh, there are dragons. You know, the great dragon himself has dragons who serve him, and they're in the church. And they're, they're dragons, even though they might seem to have good intentions for the church. In fact, a book has been written for young pastors called 
well-intentioned dragons because they are here and they exist. They are deceptive because they're nice. You know, if they're rude and obnoxious, nobody's going to listen to them. You don't have to worry about those wolves. They're not in sheep's clothing. These are nice people. They're out for your good. The dragons that I've dealt with, well, one in particular, every time he came into my office, he'd say, now, Jim, I'm, I'm just really concerned. And he would just have this look of deep sorrow on his face about how somehow I was, what I was doing was so objectionable that, that the church was going to suffer. And he'd say, I, I'm really concerned, Jim, and, and I'm not the only one. There's a whole bunch of people who are concerned with me. And I'd say, well, can you give me their names? I had to learn to do that. Can you give me their names? Well, no, they, they, they said these things to me in confidence. And I said, well, then they don't count. It's just you and me. And uh, he was really, really? That's how you deal with dragons, mano a mano. And so I'd say, it's just, you, it's just you and me. They don't count. If you want them to count, bring them. Write a letter. You know, on the, uh, he was always concerned. Uh, on the... On the left, you know, in liberal churches, the history of the cross and the resurrection are denied, and in their place is the spirit of resurrection, and it's dressed up in tolerance. And, and the life of tolerance is the righteousness and the morality that is a substitute for the cross and heavenly love, and, and it's a false gospel, and this is sim- similar to the Corinthian error, actually, where anything goes. Because we're free, we just have to tolerate each other, even if we're you know, wicked and immoral. And, but even more dangerous than this error on the left is the law-keeping that is found on the right in conservative evangelical churches, where our standing in heaven is constantly remeasured and, and reevaluated based on how we're doing it, keeping the Ten Commandments. In fact, we're so fleshly in the conservative church that you can take my prayer admonitions this morning and use them as a means for evaluating and judging each other, even based on your prayer life. We love self-righteousness. And this was the error of the Galatians and the Colossians where self-discipline and and moral no-nos dominate the life of the church. So here's what Paul has to say about the conservative church. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Now, you read a list like that, and you're certain that Paul's talking about those people out there, maybe the people on the left or just the people not in the church. No, he's talking about us. This is us. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. This is what looks like when you're self-righteous. This is actually the attitude of your heart. And so it's amazing that Paul lumps all these sinful attitudes 
with a form of godliness. We wouldn't even think of that, but that's what Paul says. And his point is, is that falsehood in the church always comes as pride and self-promotion wrapped up in religious living. And it destroys the church by removing grace and substituting for holiness with self-righteousness. Instead of holy living, we live self-righteous moral lives. And, you know, my own personal experience with this is that it comes with a healthy, healthy dose of gossip and is always shaped in concern and unreasonable criticism of leadership or building plans or, or money and especially children's programs. And so my question for you this morning is, is this you? Are you one of the well-intentioned dragons who's, you're just really concerned that everything would be done right and in good order and that we'd be doing the right things, of course. And so the problem is, is that this false form of righteousness also leads to a false mission. The mission of the church is missions. The mission of the church is the promotion of the Lord Jesus Christ as a savior of souls. The three most divisive movements in the evangelical church today, in my opinion, are homeschooling, Christian schooling, and politics. The chief idols in America are kids and money. And if we won't transform the world through prayer, then maybe politics will work. At this moment, I realize that I've probably stepped on everybody's toe in the place, including mine. Now, I want you to realize what I'm saying. These things are divisive not because they are bad. You heard me say that, right? They're not bad. But they're divisive not because they're bad, but because they are often substituted for the mission. And all three churches I've served in have substituted these things for the mission, education and politics. And I was part of the problem. Beloved, our mission is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and to teach them to obey the law of love and to multiply themselves, not to separate themselves and exclude other people. You know, the early church turned the world upside down, or you could say they turned it right side up through prayer, preaching, and amazing love, the radical generosity that Paul mentions at the end of this text. Education is not discipleship. Parents are commanded in the Bible to disciple their children regardless of how you educate them. And they are not the same thing. Homeschooling and Christian schooling are not morally superior choices, nor are they more Christian. It's false. It's divisive. It's a form of godliness, but lacking the power of the gospel. And I know this from personal experience. When I was a pastor of 35, about Andrew's age, Sherry and I were homeschooling. Well, Sherry was doing more of the work than I was, of course. And we homeschooled for 13 years, and she was homeschooling five children at the same time. The Lord bless her. And, and, uh, and, and she did a really good job, and we saw a lot of benefits. I'm, I'm certain the Lord wanted us to do that. But he didn't want me to do the next thing, was to, was to try to build my church around homeschooling. And actually, the dragons in my church were helping me do that. 
And so it became an evaluation system of who the good parents were and who the bad parents are. And, and the good parents, of course, are homeschooling their kids. And, and it got to the point where our homeschooling families didn't even want their children to hang around with public school children, even if they were Christians. Now, maybe that's not you, but this is what happens in church after church after church when the mission gets off base and follows education instead of the gospel. While I was there, we had the, the, the local school board. It's a large county, Brevard County, Florida. And we, the, the, new, the new superintendent of schools was from a PCA background, and he attended my church, not for very long, because, of course, I ran him off because he was committed to public schooling. And I made it very clear that he was welcome there and he could serve there. But we were a church committed to homeschooling. And what would you do? Well, he went to a different church. If the pastor's not interested in what you're doing, you don't stay very long. And, you know, it's the same with the Republican Party. If the Republican Party is really morally superior to the Democratic Party, then how come they just funded Planned Parenthood again and they just stole another trillion dollars from my grandchildren? That's the morally superior party? No, sir, I don't think so. Here's what Paul says to do about politics in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. You want to know what to do with your political impulses? Pray for kings and all who are in high positions. What's the purpose of the prayer? So that they'll be converted? Well, I would like for them to be, but the real purpose of the prayer is that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, the purpose of the prayer is so that God will intervene in the grand scheme of things that are beyond my scope and my power as a peon so that I can live a righteous and quiet and dignified life doing the discipleship and the prayer work and ministering in public and from house to house that God's called me to do as a leader in his church. And then Paul goes on in the next verses that we won't read to talk about Jesus as our mediator. That's the focus of gospel ministry. So listen, if you want to homeschool, if God's called you to that, then great, do it. And if you want to put your kids in private Christian school, then do it. Don't use your tithe, but do it. And if you want to work for the Republican Party, then by all means do it. But don't bring the church into it. Because the minute you do, you've begun to exclude half the world. Because when a church becomes a homeschool church or a Christian school church, then everybody else is persona non grata. And they know it. And they're not staying. And you're not going to disciple them. And the irony is, is that you exclude the very people at whom you think need Jesus the most. Saz Guinness who says when, when the church identifies with one particular party that you cease to be able to speak to the other party at all. And I think we can see that over the last 40 years in America. 
We are not converting people to be Republicans, nor are we even converting them to be to, to John Calvin. We, we are converting people to Christ. These schooling, education, political issues, these are Romans 14 issues. And, and we are free in Christ to choose what we think is best for our family and with our time without judging the weaker brother or having disdain for the other brother. That's not how we treat each other. Choose. And we'll pray for each other. You know, for the last 20 years, the PCA, our denomination, has planted on average about 50 churches a year. Now, that's 1,000 churches. It sounds impressive. It's more churches. The M&A tells me it's, we've planted more churches than we've closed. That's great. We're growing. But we're not multiplying. Those 20 aren't giving birth to 20 more. Those 50 aren't being, they aren't turning into 500 in five years. It's just 50 50, 50. We're adding. And it's because we're off mission. One of the things I love about your church and I commend your leadership for is that this church, instead of committing to building some $10 million building and building an empire for Andrew here in, in uh, Carrollton, you guys are committed to church planting and to multiplying the church. Did you know that in America, 93% of churches will never daughter another church? 93%. Wow. You know, across the country, church attendance is at 20%. I don't know if you've heard of the halo effect, but in surveys, when you're asked questions, you always give yourself a better grade and a better mark. You, you answer, not according to what's true, but according to what the pollster you think might want to hear. So when people are asked about church attendance, it comes out at about 40%. So that's the halo effect. So then when they go and ask the churches who's actually there, we find out that it's 20%, not 40%. That's the halo effect. People are saying they're in church every Sunday when they at most come 50% of the time. That's the way church has gotten in America, 50 50% is the normal attendance for members even. So I live in Douglas County, did ministry at that church there for 11 years. What do you think church attendance is in Douglas County? We're in the Bible Belt. Nationwide is 20%. What do you think it is in Douglas County? It's 20%. Bible Belt, we're right there. 20%. Now, Fulton County is the big bad city. You know, that's where all the evil things happen. What do you think church attendance is like in Fulton County? It's higher. It's 29%. Then you move further away from the city where all the godly live, right, out here in the country. Carroll County, where everybody believes in Jesus in the USA. What do you think church attendance is like in Carrollton, in Carroll County? 15%. We're off mission and we're lazy. And that's why we're not multiplying churches. Those are the barriers to a church planting movement. They'll kill church plants fast. Lazy leaders being off mission. So the answer is the third thing, and that is a shallow gospel. Really, the answer is to have a full gospel, which Paul mentions here. The third thing that will kill a church planting movement is a shallow gospel. Look at verse 25. 
And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Beloved, we are the blood-bought bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know you can't say that three times fast, but say it with me. We are the blood-bought bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the full gospel. Now, Paul says that he is innocent of the blood of all men. Let me tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean that we are somehow responsible for the eternal damnation of the neighbors or coworkers or friends whom we know and we haven't yet shared the gospel with who die and go to hell. That's not our business. Ezekiel 18 and the rest of the Bible teach that we are each responsible before God for our own sin. Ezekiel 18.20 says the soul who sins is the, the one who will die. The son will, shall not sh- suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So Paul here is making a reference back to the parable of the watchman that's in Ezekiel 33. Put that up if you would. So God says, son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Now this is not about the whole world This is about the church itself. Paul is telling the Ephesian elders that he has been faithful to preach to them the full gospel, the whole measure of God's plan and purpose and redemption as the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. That before the foundations of the world, God put his love on a people whom he has sent his son to die for. That by grace, he changes our hearts and he gives us faith and repentance so that we can turn from ourselves and to trust in Christ instead. That he did this so that we would be a holy bride, a a blood-bought bride, a a people called by his own name who are eager to do what is good, a people who are forgiven of their sins and who are righteous because Jesus has given them his own righteousness, a people whose chief and lasting pleasure is the adoration of a, and worship of a loving Father and a sacrificial Savior and a life-giving Holy Spirit, that we are all firstborn sons of the Most High and that we have all the privileges that sonship brings, that he shares himself with us that we are free from guilt and slavery to sin and we are now slaves to righteousness and empowered to obey and to love our neighbor, that God is love and he has filled us with the same love so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves by relying on the righteousness of Christ Jesus. That if you trust in the law instead of God's grace, that you will be cursed. You know, I think I can say with Paul that I am innocent of your blood. Now, I don't preach here every week, but I've preached here a whole bunch. 
And if you can sit under my preaching for a week or a month or a year and still choose self-salvation, either through the self-discovery of going your own way or the self-righteousness of offering God your moralistic law-keeping, if that's still your path, beloved, then you have no excuse for the judgment that you are headed toward because you have heard the gospel. Because the good news has been given to you in abundance and good measure that the sovereign God of the universe loves you and is the great seeker of souls. He sent his son to die on a cross to bear the wrath for your sins. Whether whether that sin is lazy leadership or divisiveness or swapping out the mission. And he rose from the dead to give you life and life abundantly so that you can love him and follow him. That he offers you forgiveness and true righteousness when you put your trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Not Jesus and what you've done, just Jesus. Now that's salvation. That, beloved, is glorious freedom. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. So I invite you this morning to, to repentance and to, to real abundant life, that you would put your faith in the Lord Jesus, that you would renew your hope in him. You know, the gospel is the A to Z for Christian living and church multiplication. It's not the A, it's not the beginning. It's the Alpha and the Omega, it's the A to Z. It is the truth that justifies you. It is the truth that sanctifies you. It's the mission of the church. <clears throat> and it's the goal of hardworking leaders. You know, Jesus says that the hireling runs away when the wolves come, while the true shepherd defends the flock. So, brothers, those of you who are with me in leadership, we, we have to pray. We, we have to watch and pray and warn and train and work. You know, the elders in the church are not those who point out other people's sins. We, we are instead the chief confessors of sin. We can say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners and God has revealed his remarkable grace in me. I don't have it all together. I'm just figuring this out. I wish I'd known at 37 what I know at 57. I'd have probably been dangerous. You know, we've learned... Brothers we, brothers and sisters, we've learned to rely on the power of the cross and the righteousness of Christ to be our only standing before God and other people. So if Jesus is your righteousness, then there is no reason to blame shift or to deny sin or to lie because your standing is not improved in heaven by defending yourself. And if Jesus is your righteousness, you see, you are free to forgive others when they sin against you because you know that you are forgiven in heaven and not forgiven of just a few sins, but for a whole life of corruption and guilt and moralism in the life of the church. So you freely give then as you've received. If Jesus is your righteousness, then you are free from the love of money because you no longer have to store up for yourself worldly power and prestige and position because you know it's all an illusion. If Jesus is your righteousness, 
then you're able to walk and step with the Spirit, bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You're able to do this because your life is no longer about building up a storehouse of self-righteousness to impress God. Instead, you're free to live for others because you are no longer a lover of yourselves. And you see, the good news is, is that God will multiply believers like that. And he'll multiply leaders like that. And he'll multiply churches that are built on this gospel and nothing else. Because he loves to share his glory and to exalt his name among his people. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you for the glory and the reality that we are the blood-bought bride of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we belong to you. It is good beyond measure and it is wondrous beyond imagination that we are yours, that you love us, that you share yourself with us. It's incredible. And Lord, we're so sinful in the midst of that pleasure that we'll still find something else to be the mission of the church and the reason that connects us as people. Well, we want it to be only Jesus. Would you make that so here? Would you exalt the name of Jesus in the preaching of Andrew and others and in the leadership of these elders and in the congregation itself? Would you anoint this place with prayer in the coming month as they train and work on their personal and corporate prayer lives and then follow that up with this this summer? Would you make prayer the foundation of the ministry here as the leaders teach the gospel from in public and from house to house? And would you reveal your glory here as you exalt the name of Jesus, multiplying disciples and multiplying churches? Would you do it for our good, Lord, but mostly for your glory? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.